Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. Food, glorious food. We love to photograph our food. But let's be frank, some of the food that we photograph and post on Instagram or Facebook doesn't look so appetizing. So we are meeting today with uh, Jay Williams. Uh, Jay is a professional lifestyle photographer. Her work has uh, appeared on many websites and in many magazines. Um, the website, uh, one of the websites her work has appeared on is CNN's for Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. Also, Munchies, which is part of the website Vice, uh, the Food Network magazine, and of course, Woman Around Town. So uh, we're going to talk with Jay about how amateur photographers can learn from what professional photographers do. So Jay, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with why you think food photography by amateurs has become so popular. I don't think it's necessarily amateur as well as it's more so everyone's interested in food. I don't care if you're a child and you love your fish sticks and macaroni or your grandmother cooking your favorite recipe that you've made for 70 years. Food is communal and it's something that now that we have the ability to actually capture in various mediums that it's become so popular. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But now we've got websites and places we can post those photographs. Absolutely. Well, I definitely think that the difference between amateurs and professionals is basically the amount of time that goes into making that plate of photography look amazing. Mm -hmm. When you're an amateur, you might be having an outing with your family or your loved one, and you just take out your camera and you take a photograph of it and you post it. Where a professional is going to take time to edit that and make it look almost absolutely perfect before it goes onto a social media realm. Well, what are some of the things that you do as a professional photographer that an amateur can learn from? Well, it depends on who you're shooting for, but some of the things that I do, I always use natural light. Sometimes uh, artificial light is included, um, depending if you're shooting in a studio or if you're shooting on site. You might use uh, props such as glue for uh, milk or brush oil to make something look shiny. So you might not have those things at your fingertips when you're at a restaurant shooting your food as an amateur, but those are some of the little tips that a lot of um, professional photographers use instead of amateurs or dry ice to make something look uh, smoky. So uh, photographing food with an iPhone or a Samsung phone, how do, how do those differ? Samsung has been a part of the photography game, in my opinion, for a long time. My friends that actually own Samsungs, I'm always grabbing them on the sly and saying, let me take a photo with your phone when I don't have my DSLR. iPhone just caught up, unfortunately, last year with their dual lens camera. Um, their portrait photography stepped up, their depth of field um, within photography stepped up, but Samsung definitely has been ahead of the curve, so I'm very interested to see what iPhone is going to do with the release of the iPhone 8 in September. So what do you think is the biggest mistake that amateur photographers make? 
I think it's just the instantaneous post that they do. They don't take into consideration how that might transfer to the audience that they're trying to wow. I think BuzzFeed has done an actual post on their website of you know the 20 worst food photography photos online. And they're actually quite disgusting. They make you want to throw up. <laughs> so uh, I think that's where people should start to see what not to do and then go to some professional food photographers' pages. One of mine uh, in particular that I really look up to is Daniel Krieger of New York City. He's simply known as New, uh, NYC Food Photographer. And he shoots for Eater as well as Food and Wine and New York Times. And his food photography is just absolutely spectacular. So to see it on, you know, the various spectrums where you shouldn't, what you shouldn't do and what you should aspire maybe to become. Well, I think the interesting thing too is that we're in a restaurant we snap one photo with an iPhone or a Samsung phone. But when you go out on a professional assignment, you're taking a really long time to set up and to photograph that food that's in front of you. So how long do you usually take on a professional assignment? It depends. It depends on the number of items that the restaurant or chef wants done. Most restaurants I'm starting to notice want lifestyle shots, which they don't just want the food and the beverage. They want the restaurant interiors. They want the chefs. They want the staff actually shot so it can be, become a story because food is static. And so when someone sees a picture of, of, of a plate of food, you want them to be enticed to say, I want to come into that restaurant. But as we all know, we are all drawn towards stories. And so when someone learns more about the chef or the dishwasher who's actually making sure that the restaurant keeps running, then they're more inclined to come in and order that plate of food because they feel like they know the story behind it. But now an amateur photographer probably wouldn't be able to do some of those shots. I mean, do chefs want to be photographed by amateurs in restaurants? I don't think that's true. I know that a lot of people don't own a DSLR, and they are okay with not having their photography looking like it's coming out of New York Times or Washington Post. They're okay with just capturing that moment. That's okay for them. And chefs are excited about people who are excited about their food. So regardless if you're a professional or an amateur, as long as you are excited about their food just as much as they are, I have found that they are willing to come out and talk to you and let you take their picture and et cetera and so forth. In your experience, what types of ethnic food photographs best? Well, I don't think there's a best. It's pretty much all food photography, uh, all food actually uh, photographs extremely well. I think that food with colors definitely is better, or is better than, you know, something such as a plate of white macaroni and cheese. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love my truffle mac and cheese, but if there's not pieces of the truffle bits inside of the mac and cheese, it looks pretty bland compared to, let's say, a dish of Indian food, which uses bright yellows and oranges and reds, et cetera, and so forth. So I don't think there's a particular ethnic group that photographs better than the other. It's really about colors and then also what you're shooting on. Um, if you look on Instagram, there's a lot of uh, food photographers that shoot on white or white marble because, of course, that is the standard background, and then it really concentrates on the plate. 
there are some photographers that shoot very dark. Um, I know that What for Breakfast, she is an amazing food photographer. Her photography is very dark, almost um, representative of how Sephora magazine shoots, very dark. Instead of food and wine, it shoots bright. So those little things play into the colors that you may or may not want to have in your you know, photograph. So we're talking about plates of finished food, but I, I know I love to watch, to see photographs of the process of making yes. food, you know, making pasta or yes. cooking something on the stove. Yes. So is that becoming more popular also? Absolutely. I think that's one of my favorite things to shoot because you get to get in the kitchen with the person making the food and really see what goes into it. Sometimes that requires you showing up at three or four o'clock in the morning because that's when they start. And so if you want to see that you know, process, you need to get there. Um, my last shoot was actually on a schooner in Maine and I went with my colleague, uh, Jacob Bean, and we were able to be on the J.E. Riggins, which is a historical landmark. And it's a wooden schooner that has a wood stove. And the chef, uh, Chef Annie Mollify, I'm going to say her last name wrong. Please forgive me, Annie, I love you. Um, she definitely cooks everything with wood. And we had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to see her stoking that wood stove and preparing for breakfast, which wasn't until 8. So before all of our other colleagues got up, we would be, we would be up wow. shooting. <laughs> and it was nice to see her from start to finish because by the time breakfast happened, we knew what those four hours entailed before. Yeah, I think maybe we forget sometimes how hard Absolutely. chefs work. Well, actually, one of the guests said thank you so much for capturing this because we have been on this you know, cruise four or five times and we just are ready to sit down and eat. But seeing the effort that you guys tried to capture of her, we forgot how much of the effort she puts in. So it is a nice reminder, and it, it, it lets people, or it reminds people that it's not so easy as just showing up on the plate. Now, I know you also photograph beverages, mm -hmm. and of course, mixology has become such a big thing. I mean, we used to just have bartenders. Now we have mixologists who are making all of these fabulous drinks. Right. So talk a little bit about what it's like to photograph beverages. So I'm still really learning uh, the process of shooting beverages because with beverages, you have, you know, ice and condensation on the glass and, you know, if you're shooting at the bar, how high is the bar? How short are you? Do you need a stool? Um, is it a dark bar like a speakeasy? Is there too much light coming in because there's it's a rooftop bar? Um, one of the books that really inspired me was Robert Simonson's uh, perfect cocktail. He used to be, I think, a columnist at the New York Times, and he gave a talk here in Washington, D.C. with Paul Friedman, who wrote 10 Best Restaurants of America. And he really talks about the cocktail culture and how before it was just Cosmos and um, maybe a Jack and Coke, and it was actually looked down upon to be a bartender back in the 60s and sometime between the 60s and you know, the 80s, it become, became popular, um, and he started writing about cocktails in 2006, and from since then, it's just, of course, grown exponentially, where now you can take classes on how to crack your ice, and uh, <laughs> using only natural ingredients, uh, as well as using things like um, 
special bitters. The process is so meticulous, but when you have that process, then once again, you don't mind paying $20 for a cocktail because you know everything that it took to make that cocktail. One of the places I do want to go that he mentioned was the Rainbow Room in New York. And so I know it's changed a little bit. However, that's one of my places on my bucket list to have a cocktail. Well, I think it's interesting because I usually just order a glass of wine, but I find now when I go to a restaurant, I want to look at that cocktail list to see what things that they've come up with that I may want to try. So I, I find it fascinating. So going back to people coming into restaurants and wanting to photograph, uh, I understand that there are some restaurants in New York now that are asking patrons not to photograph their food. And I know you were telling me about uh, something that happened to you in New York recently. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So my friend was invited to go to Daniel's, which is a part of Daniel Belue's uh, restaurant group. It's a three-star Michelin restaurant. And she invited me to come. And the first question I asked, of course, was, you know, can I, can I take a photograph? And she said, well, um, and due to her hemming and hawing, I just took her resistance as a no. But for some people, especially when it's a, a Michelin restaurant and you're paying two, three hundred dollars, people want to capture that meal. And of course, in the restaurant's defense, they want people to enjoy the meal. And not saying that taking a photograph will, would not, uh, you know, make you not enjoy your meal, but you, you do lose some of the essence of that meal. When I'm out with my friends and it's a beautiful table setting, they tell me, Jay, you have one minute to get the shot and then we're ready to eat. And I understand because people want to have it when it's hot and they just want to dig in and start laughing and saying, mm, this is great, you should try this. Not you know, 20 minutes later and the food is cold and unappealing and unappeasing. Actually, my colleague, Jacob Dean, he always, you know, teases people when they see us work together and say, I've never had a hot meal with her, which is very true. So I understand why New York is banning photography. I think it's something that you should ask beforehand. And sometimes they do have special hours where they say, okay, during this time, we will allow photography. So if you want to take photographs, you should come. I mean, it's usually earlier before. Earlier most of the is probably run. the best. Uh, you know, if a restaurant opens at five, five thirty, that's normally the best time to make a reservation. Ask to sit by a window so that way you can have natural light in addition to your artificial light if you're using flash. But the dining room isn't as busy. You're not disturbing as many patrons, and you're getting the best light. Now I know we talked about lighting, and we both saw the Urban Ken exhibition in New York at the Metropolitan Museum and I know that I always appreciated Irving Penn's still lifes in Vogue magazine they were just so wonderful and, and many of those were in the exhibition but you were talking about how his uh, um, focus on lighting was so important not only with the food but with all of his work yes that that exhibit was absolutely amazing However, there was one in particular, it said that when he had his studio in Paris, it was at the top of this townhome that maybe it was maybe 10 stories or something, and there wasn't an elevator or running water. However, he chose it because of the light, and so he would only have a stool 
and his backdrop and his camera and this light that was coming in had this almost whimsical look and I think he might have had a filter such as like a, um, a see-through white curtain or something like that so it could filter the light just a little bit but he shot very naturally very raw and it was very beautiful he is definitely one of my favorite photographers so what's the most difficult assignment you've ever had I don't know if I should say this on air, but it happened to be actually a year ago. Um, I shot for a hotel brand that will remain nameless and um, assumed that it was going to be at the location of the new restaurant. However, um, the PR firm that they were working with other ideas and it was held in a cave and when I say a cave it had the space had no windows and they had a lot of nat um, artificial light excuse me as like the little candles that are you know illuminating this orange kind of light and I walked in and I was just like OMG which is why you always get you know to your assignment early but however all of the lighting that I would have needed Unfortunately, I did not bring with me. And so I think it was the first time in my career that A, I had failed and failed so publicly where I was not happy with the photographs that came out. And even some of my colleagues that know me very well said, oh, Jay, that wasn't some of your best work. And I said, oh, I know. And as a photographer, you always want your clients to be happy. So you try to, you know, rectify the situation as best you can. So, you know, I offered to give my feedback. I offered to do whatever I could to make it right in their eyes. So we settled on me shooting their initial uh, food and beverage menu um, at the place that I originally thought it was going to be uh, free of charge because to me, my brand is everything. My name is all that I have. So I wanted to make it right. And... Um, gracefully, they allowed me to do that, and the photographs were in the Washington Post the next week. So sometimes you can make it right, but what I learned from that is that sometimes when you're working with especially larger brands, the client has other people that are executing what they want done. So the client had their idea of what they wanted done, but they were relying on a PR firm to get it done. So I should have been in contact not only with the client, but also with the PR firm as well. So lesson learned. Absolutely. But with this one with a good outcome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so someone who wants to get better at taking uh, food photos, are there classes either, you know, in-person classes or online classes that one can take to do that? Yes. Oh, and let me just make that clear. It was on the Washington Post website, not actually in the physical newspaper. I want to make that very clear. Um, so yes, there are various sites, things like Skillshare, that's one. There's also um, uh, LinkedIn's Linda, as well as Creative Live, which is a new one that I'm particularly interested in. Um, the New York Times food photographer, Andrew Scrivani, he actually has courses on there, and his food photography is something spectacularly amazing. And the way he plays with artificial light, it makes it look almost like, like natural light. And I do remember the, a, 
um, someone had interviewed me who's a photo editor of Bon Appetit, and she said that what they look for, they prefer natural light, but if a photographer can use both natural and artificial light without making it look artificial, that's their photographer. And I don't know if that's what Andrew does, but it is one of my, he's one of my favorite food photographers besides Daniel Krieger and a few others. And it probably helps to follow some food photographers. Oh, absolutely. You, you always, I, I don't compare myself, but I definitely try to see what I'm, what I can improve on. There's always room for improvement. And when I look back on my photographs from when I first started two years ago, I cringe. <laughs> and then when I look at, you know, photographers that I admire and that I look up to, I still cringe like, oh, I still need to get so much better. But it helps put things into perspective. So uh, tell me what your next goal is. I mean, is there some place you'd like to go to photograph food or? Well, one of the things that I've definitely focused on in the last year is food history documentation. And so I've been lucky to shoot for a few tourism boards and capture their food history, which has been really awesome because once again, it's just not in a restaurant setting you're learning the process. So sometimes you have to go out to their garden. Sometimes you have to get on a lobster boat <laughs> to see that full process. And that has been very exciting. Just Is that a new emerging area, food history? Um, I wouldn't say new, but there's a documentary on PBS. I can't remember the name of it. Please forgive me, but... He is um, a gentleman that follows the food history of colonial America as well as the Caribbean. And it was very interesting to see how the foodways of various places overlap. And with all the new innovation and people always looking for the best new restaurant, I think sometimes we forget to get to that point. There had to be something before so that's what I'm definitely looking forward to investigating and capturing more of. Oh, that's great. Well, Jay, thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts on food photography with us. Uh, and uh, those of you who would like to see more of uh, Jay's photos, you can certainly come to Woman Around Town, but also check out uh, the CNN website with Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. Uh, Munchies, which is part of the website Vice, and the Food Network magazine. So, Jay, thanks a lot. It was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.